say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. My name is Cameron Buckner, and this is the What If It's True podcast. In this podcast, I have three stories. Two of the writers are anonymous, and one is a professional writer. The first story is entitled The Cove. It's written by a good friend of mine who lives in Middle Tennessee. It's a family story that has been passed down through generations, and he was good enough to write it for us. The second story is a story that I actually did on another podcast called Dixie Cryptid about two years ago. At that time, I didn't have good sound equipment, and I wasn't very good at narration, and the story was so good that I had to remaster the story. The story is called Ready, Red, Me, and the Sasquatch. And when we get to the third story, I'll explain that when we get there. Thank you for listening in on this podcast, and I hope you enjoy it. The old woman felt lonely at times, but never really sensed being alone, not until now. All morning, the deafening silence had caused a ringing within her ears. She seldom hated going outside into the fresh air, but the up and down of the temperature was maddening as she tried to keep her drafty cabin tolerable for him. Quarter-sized flakes had drifted down all morning upon the near foot of snow that had fallen last night, a wetter, softer blanket than usual for February. Now, in the late afternoon, it was bone-chilling cold again and sleeting. Gusts of wind pierced like jabs from a knitting needle against her skin as she peered out the door. She knew she had to try to reach the depleted stacks at the barn lean-to before it got any more uncomfortable in the house. 
Thick ice formed beneath the snow. Now it was piling up. When the wind picked up and bent the cedars, it sounded like a small battle echoing up the cove. As she stepped into the evening cold, the occasional sudden cracking of limbs and whole trees under the wet burden in the pine thicket were like cannon shot coming down the ridges. The sound sent chills through her spine, and then the silence would come as quickly as it left. Forty-eight years they had made their home here in this hollow, and the company of one another had always been more than enough until now. She owed him a safe and peaceful passing. There wasn't much else she could have done anyway. No phone, no safe road out in these conditions. It would be at least tomorrow morning until Jed or his son came up from outside the cove from the flats below and checked on them. Cinching his logging boots snug around her small ankles, she thought back to the horror just one week before. It seemed like an eternity ago. The man had been away from the cove only a couple of days on timber cruise up north of Jamestown at a place called, of all things, Maud's Crack. In the past, the solitude of the cove had been bearable, even welcome, knowing he would return, but she could never have imagined her love returning the way he had. As he had loaded up his pack and tools, he had all but admitted to her he was too old for this sort of work anymore. She knew now she should have talked him out of it. I ain't nimble no more around timber. This'll be my last time, I promise. He kept mumbling that these were desperate times and they needed the hard cash, not barter trade or scrip. This was all he knew, and Roosevelt's government was willing to pay well to teach clearing and logging to some of those CCC boys up at the picket camp. I can't pass this up. They ain't paying in worthless company store money. Nope, cold hard cash. That's what we need. It's the best money anybody's seen since we worked on that dam for TVA eight years ago. Yet just two days after she had bid him farewell, the job boss had sent word by a supply truck driver driving back to Monterey. There had been a serious accident, and she best hurry. It wasn't hard to piece together. This story had been played over and over in mountain life. Logging was treacherous work fraught with perils. A massive dead chestnut his road crew was cutting shifted. At the final step of felling, there had been poor wedging by a youngster, and part of the trunk had splintered and shot wrong from the stump. In jumping clear to the side, the old man had tripped and stumbled off a limestone outcropping. Within an hour of hearing the news, the woman had walked out of the cove to Jed's cabin in the flats, and they had driven his old logging truck the 40 miles to the camp. The doctor argued that he couldn't be moved, his body broken in so many places as it was, but when she smelled the stench of sour whiskey on the breath of the so-called physician, she knew she had to try. He would be better off under her care. If worse came to worse, at least he'd die at home. He now lay upon a day bed she made off to the side of the fireplace and slowly pneumonia or some form of consumption had set in and he was spitting blood. No doctor made calls this far out during winter. She and Jed had talked about taking him to the Monterey Clinic, 
but the old man just didn't seem like he would hold up for the trip. When she saw the damage to his body up close, she knew it was just a matter of time anyway. For six days, she did not sleep, occasionally dozing fitfully while listening to his breathing and wiping his forehead, tending to what little she could of his wounds, especially where the compound fracture had torn through the skin and sinew below the hip. Now, moving off the porch, the reality of the moment hit her with another snap of a tree just up from the old family cemetery. He hadn't visited his family's graves like she felt he should, only going there to sickle grass in the summer from the stones of five generations who had lived on this hard scrabble land. He had always said that he didn't want to be a rock worshiper, but she could sense another apprehension by the way he took special care around his only sister's grave. The old woman found herself high-stepping in his worn hobnail winter boots with socks stuffed in the toe to make them stay on. They made for easier passage on the ice below the fresh snow, and she could only occasionally hear the click of the small spikes against the ice. When she got to the barn door and broke free the ice, she took time to climb the old wall ladder into the loft, clearing the dusty cobwebs in her path and threw down hay to a few rangy cows sheltering below. Pulling down the homemade sled off the wall pegs of the milking parlor, she brushed off the years of dust and memories. With each swipe of the glove, memories flooded back of the runs down the mountain path with the grandkids screaming with terror, raining the rails to keep from veering into the trees at each turn. Now, with no one to haul firewood, it would be a long haul back to the house and the sled was her only choice. She loaded it with a few splits she thought she could manage and some dowel kindling for the stove. Tugging this burden the 200 feet to the house felt impossible at her age and in her state of weariness. It was getting colder as the sun retreated over the crest, shadows chasing ahead of her. Stopping to catch her breath, she listened to the silence around her. That's when she felt a short respite of serenity, and then a sense that she was not alone. Why? She couldn't say. Had she heard something other than the normal creaks of the barn swayed by the wind? She kept looking over the gravestones. The sight of the cold limestone sent a shiver through her cold, aching body. It took all her strength to move the sled through the ice-crusted snow, and then suddenly it seemed to become easier. The pulling, at least, like the sled was being inched along by a force beside her. Between steps, she heard a sudden soft flutter in the hay trolley opening at the top of the barn and turned to see a white form. A barn owl secretively made its turn towards the open paddocks and then into the woods to begin its night forage. Her husband delighted at the sight of them in the winter when all else was asleep and underground. He told her to be quiet in the barn in the winter. That's when the owls nested because they had longer feeding hours for their young. Through the snow fog and twilight, the house came into view again. Smoke from the fireplace seemed to be especially strong as she went around the house by her garden plot. She guessed she had put more wood on it than she thought. 
Finally, after several pauses to catch her breath in the icy wind that pierced her lungs, she made it to the back porch and unloaded the wood. Sitting on the bench, she ached as she bent over to untie the boots and rub her wet feet. Quietly, she eased open the door and carried an armload in to place on the hod next to the fire, listening for his slow, uneven breathing while she labored. That's when she heard it, a soft, soothing hymn being sung from within, a woman's melodic voice, barely more than a whisper, almost a lullaby. She didn't recognize the words, probably Methodist. She dropped the armload she was carrying and pondered. What type of crazy person could have come up the cove in this storm? Oh, Lord, I wish I had brought his shotgun. A voice came from the front room. Dear, dear, I've startled you. I knocked, but no one came to the door, and I had to warm up before starting back down. Beside her husband's daybed sat a lovely, obviously refined woman, maybe her age, but dressed comfortably and tastefully in fine stockings, like you'd see in a hosiery shop in Nashville, a plaid wool dress and a winter flop hat tied on by a bow, and a bulging red muffler not dissimilar from one she wore to keep wind away from her neck on cold days. She was dressed well, but certainly not clad to be out in this blizzard, much less in these mountains in February. Something about the woman, though, spoke serenity and the fact that she need not feel any dread. There was something eerily familiar about her face, her eyes. But what? How did... Can I... Who are you, if you don't mind me asking? The woman didn't look in distress or hungry or cold. She was just sitting there beside her husband, gently stroking his hair. She had placed her hook and eye boots beside the fire, which strangely weren't soaked like they should be. The old woman could not look beyond the wanderer's eyes, almost translucently blue yet shimmering and alert and loving. One could always read a person through the eyes, he had said, and she had learned that he was right. These portals imbued a kind of caring disposition more than anything else. I was just startled. I didn't guess that any fool would or could get up the lane in this weather. I was just passing the cove and I decided to take this path, and I'm afraid I've wandered too far. Perhaps just a bit of time to warm by the fire. The woman thought to herself, nobody just passes this cove, even in the comfort of spring or a summer day but especially near nightfall, and sure as Hades never in a storm like this. Like she was reading her mind, the wanderer softly continued, When I was a child, I was familiar with this cove, and I used to walk the hills searching for mushrooms and ginseng. I recall walking and talking with your husband in those days. I had a feeling reach down in me, call it a sixth sense, that you both might welcome my company at the moment. I sensed this was the path that I should take. Always free with visitors on the rare occasions they came to the cove in the spring, summer, or fall, this sudden arrival in the weather was strangely out of place. The wanderer seemed to be comfortable enough, but tonight it didn't matter. She could use the companionship. She looked again at the vaguely familiar face. The eyes were compellingly non-threatening so she motioned towards his downfield chair by the fireplace, and the uninvited guest gathered herself and stepped over. 
With eyes fixed upon the old man in the day bed, she said, Please go about whatever you're doing. I can see I've disturbed you in your care for him, but I'll only be a while longer. This chair is so comfortable, I can bet it's your husband's favorite. The old woman looked at the fire. The room was darkening in a soft-filtered sepia tone. She relished these peaceful moments with firelight illuminating the room. Disquieted but feeling grateful for a soul to keep company, the old woman went to the wood stove in the kitchen and restoked the fire with the kindling to heat the beef broth. This broth and some rehydrated apples had been his sustenance in the final days. It was all he wanted, all he needed as he was slipping away. Taking two small bowls in the front room, she handed one to her guest and then put a spoon from the other to his lips. As he took a small sip, she gently stroked his whiskered face and he stirred enough to smile at her and then drift back into a slumber. She sat there on the stool with all her cherished memories of life with him, laid her head softly on his chest, and drifted off to a deep slumber. When she startled awake, an inkling of pink light was coming from the east and the fire was low embers. She must have slept for hours. Lifting her head then by instinct, she placed it back on his chest. She could hear his heart ever so slightly, a wispy breathing, but no movement. I've missed my prayers, my asking for grace, she murmured as she knelt on sore knees beside him. Laying her hands upon his forehead, she cried softly. The old man stirred a moment and then coughed a soft, wheezy cough and rolled slightly to his side. His eyes opened when he did, and he smiled at the wanderer, seeming to recognize her face as if they had known each other just yesterday. Could she have been someone he had courted in those early years? Their visitor smiled back in a look as if they knew each other, a knowing look and nodded to him almost with a wink. Belle gently tucked his pillows more comfortably, and as she did, the woman eased out of the room. When their visitor returned, she was carrying an armload of firewood that she carefully placed upon the fire. She tended it carefully with the poker, moving a backlog towards the rear, just the proper way for a good fire to push heat into the room. It was then that Belle glanced over at the mantel, and her eyes became riveted on the cross he had carved for her from walnut so many years before. Never had she valued it so much, this very personal crucifix that could be a visible receptacle for her prayers for him. The wanderer knelt on one side of the daybed and placed something within his withered hand and then closed his clutch. Belle sat on the hearth and watched the wanderer's tenderness towards her husband. Summoning her over with a nod, they both knelt beside the old man and stroked his hand and his cheek and his hair. There was no more stirring. He was gone. He was finally at peace, her prayers for a peaceful passage fulfilled. The wanderer lightly stepped away and walked into the bedroom. She came back with a quilt they had never used, a piece his sister had finished quilting just before she had tragically passed. Feeling a bit of indignation and, in fact, some jealousy, Belle started to object. 
The sweet smile on the visitor's face as she covered his body, however, gave her a momentary feeling of grace and comfort in the tenderness of this act. He was surprisingly light as they straightened his body, combed his hair. Then the wanderer placed two Indian head pennies on his eyes and carefully crossed his hands. Bell thought he looked so much younger now that the pain was gone. While she was studying his fine features this last time, the sun was starting to rise and cast a few rays of light into the cove outside the window. The wanderer bent at the waist and caressed her head, then gave a sweet kiss to her cheek. The touch of another in this moment gave such comfort. I'll be taking my leave now. I will see that your neighbors know to be on their way as I depart. Belle wasn't listening and was lost in her memories, in her loss as she felt a small, cold gust from the door as it closed. When she looked up, the wanderer was gone. She looked at Silas again, and it was then she noticed the cross of ashes on his forehead. She took his hand once more under the quilt and was surprised that in his grasp was his pocket watch. She thought it was broken at first, but it was only because the back catch was open to the picture he always carried. It was not her picture that she saw first. Rather, it was a tin type of his long-dead sister. That cherubic smile, those clear blue eyes. It was not just a resemblance to her visitor. Now she knew where she had seen that wonderfully distinct beauty. Outside, she heard the ringing of the huge dinner bell. For generations, it had called a Cove family to task, told of dinner time, and sent word of need or celebration to neighbors just outside the Cove. She stepped quickly to the window and wiped away the frost. She must bid a proper goodbye, but what direction had the wanderer gone? Maybe she had stepped out for a puff on her pipe. The bell rope was still swinging, but no one was near the bell post, and the snow was untrampled. Bell looked, but there were no footsteps in the snow, not a single one, either coming or going. Had she dreamed it all? As she looked towards the opening of the cove, she thought she could hear a wagon crunching through the ice at the stream crossing. Then the familiar greeting shout, Hello, the house! By the way they sat in the wagon, she knew it was Jed and his wife. She collapsed onto the stoop and she wept for thanks. For so many things, her life with a good man, this cove, her neighbors, and a strange and surreal visitor, not of this world, when she needed one the most. As she looked down the road towards the sound of the harness bells, she just caught sight of an owl and then its mate. One flew directly to and perched on the tallest stone in the family cemetery. The other flew on to the nest in the barn as it carried a meal for its chicks. She knew she was not alone now, nor would she ever be. Ready, red, me, and the Sasquatch. My therapist had me write these events down in an attempt to cleanse me of my PTSD. I think it worked because I'm fine now. I thought I would share it with you nice folks. 
This is the story of me, Red, and the Sasquatch. Never seen one of these tiller handles break like this, said the greasy old mechanic. This old motor's made of steel. What did the boy do, twist it with a pipe wrench or something? My father glanced at the old Chrysler outboard he had inherited when my grandfather passed away, and then at Reddy Red and me. He let out an amused snort and replied to the greasy mechanic, The boys say Bigfoot chased him. I looked over at Red in an attempt to avoid the teasing tobacco-stained smile of the mechanic. Actually, it had been an Arkansas Sasquatch that chased us, not some common Bigfoot. I had broken the tiller handle while twisting it in the wrong direction while trying to throttle down as Red and I were rapidly closing in on the boat landing behind our cabin after our latest frog hunt. Well, the still-smiling outboard repairman said as he wiped the excess tobacco juice from his chin using his noticeably darker right form. (laughs) Oh, shit, I crack up every time I read that. Oh, let's start over. Well, the still-smiling outboard repairman said as he wiped the excess tobacco juice from his chin. He was using his noticeably darker right forearm. I might not be able to find new parts for this old kicker, but I'll fix her up for you somehow. Keep them boys away from Sasquatch, all right? I heard a partially muted and totally non-humorous chuckle behind me. I turned to Red to see by his expression that he was also a little agitated by the mechanic's mirth. At that time, we had not talked much about that faithful night's frog hunt on Mud Lake. And now, nearly 30 years later, I still get chills when I recall the night Red and I almost gave up frog hunting forever. The infamous frog hunt took place in the summer of 1981. I was 12, Reddy Red was half past 13. At that carefree time in our lives, we spent every moment we could at my father's cabin in Arkansas. The cabin is on an oxbow of the White River, deep down in the flat-as-a-pancake Mississippi River Delta. In front of the cabin, as far as your eyes can see, are seemingly endless cotton and soybean fields, and behind the cabin, there are miles and miles of rich hardwood bottomland. Lakes are scattered in broken chains throughout the huge expanses of hardwood timber, and at the edge of all that timber lies the White River. It was a veritable paradise for Red and me. It was large expanse of timber company land that later became the White River National Wildlife Refuge. In the summertime, we would begin fishing at dawn, and soon after, the white-hot delta sun would begin to broil us. Oppressive heat and humidity baked the smelly gumbo to our jeans or our bare legs. The overly abundant mosquitoes raised crimson whelps in every small opening in our coating of mud. It was a paradise, I tell you. After spending the long summer day not catching fish, Red and I would remove all unnecessary equipment from our John boat just before dark, leaving only our spotlights and a twenty-two rifle. We would then go inside the cool cabin for supper. I love supper time. Supper was whatever fish my father and his buddies had caught. 
French fries we made from real potatoes, and hush puppies all prepared in a big cast iron pot on the back porch of the cabin. After dinner, Red and I would lounge around waiting for it to get good and dark. Good and dark was gradually taking on a new meaning for the two of us. That summer marked our second year of frog hunting by ourselves, and we considered ourselves to be veterans. We were now actually waiting for darkness to arrive to begin our hunt. We had also graduated from the electric trolling motor and paddles that we used the previous summer to what we called the big motor. It was an 8-horsepower Chrysler outboard passed down from my grandfather. Red and I were now a frog-hunting force to be reckoned with. The outboard was ancient. It was white where paint remained, it had no cowl, and it looked like it could not possibly run. It would, in fact, run if half-heartedly if you knew the process required to start it. My part of the cranking process consisted of turning the throttle wide open, wrapping a cord with a knot around the flywheel a few times, standing upright on splayed legs in the center of the boat, and giving the cord a stout jerk. Red had commented that there were two stout jerks involved in the cranking process, but he was always rambling on about one thing or another. It was always a good idea to remember to place the gear shift in neutral before jerking the cord. It was my experience that even an 8-horsepower engine could accelerate faster than a person could sit down and steer. Since then, manufacturers of outboard engines have taken some of the fun out of fishing by installing a gizmo that keeps people from experimenting with inertia and accidental acceleration in boats. Red's involvement in starting the engine was a bit defensive. He would begin muttering threats at about the same time I started winding the cord around the flywheel. Red perched himself on the outer reaches of the bow, as far from the engine and the soon-to-be-snapping cord as possible. The little 12-foot John boat we used didn't allow him much room to retreat, though. He had learned early on that starting the engine required me to jerk the cord as hard as I was able, which turned the knotted end of the cord into a bullwhip of sorts. On the increasingly rare occasions when he forgot to block or fully retreat from the cord when it arched over my back, he was rewarded with a whelp and later with a small, almost perfectly round bruise. Whenever he was not given enough notice to avoid the knot, Red would gently remind me to let him know before I jerked the cord by screaming out, and charging my end of the boat, his eyes filled with pain and malice. Sometimes I got lucky enough for the engine to start at the same moment that the knot made contact with his back, and I became quite good at rapidly shifting into reverse to offset his progress towards the rear of the boat. To this day, Red watches me carefully whenever I start an outboard and sometimes even has to be coaxed down from the bow of the boat. Something traumatic must have happened to him before we met to make him so skittish. Poor boy. After the engine was started, it had to be kept at almost its highest RPM to remain running. It would not idle. Attempting to motor along at a slow speed meant every stump or other underwater obstruction caused the engine to sputter and die. Then the whole cranking process had to be repeated. 
Maybe not the most convenient setup ever, but it was great setup in contrast with the trolling motor we used the summer before. On this fateful night, Red and I had managed to wait an hour or so after dark to begin our hunt. We pushed the boat out into Green Lake and we started the engine. Red kept his spotlight pointed fully into my face until he was satisfied that he would not be receiving another stripe on his back from the starting cord. We motored slowly down the narrow oxbow, searching the bank for huge bullfrogs that grow in the delta. When we located a frog, I would turn the boat towards the bank and line the bow up with our target. Red would lay on his stomach across the front seat of the boat, one hand directing the spotlight into the frog's eyes while the hand remained poised to the side waiting for the precise instant to shoot his hand forward to grab the frog before it jumped into the water or was run over by the boat. The engine would die the moment I released the throttle. Red would pull the frog from the muck as I quickly paddled away from the bank. We tried to avoid tearing near the bank due to the large population of copper-headed water rattlers that call those lake banks their home. Red would then smile and hold the big, mottled, smelly frog by its middle for me to admire while I readied the outboard for a restart. We always had a cooler full of ice and drinks in the center of the boat, and Red would toss the frog into the cooler and slam the lid down quickly. The frog would bump and thump against the lid for a few minutes until the ice sapped it of its energy. We were proud of this process, and we considered ourselves the originators of frog catch and release. If we didn't have a good night frogging, we would let our sluggish but very much alive frogs go when we returned to the cabin. We followed the winding lake bank for a mile or two, long past the last cabin, when we decided to drink a soda and feed the local population of mosquitoes. Spotlights were turned off to save the batteries and we were in complete darkness. We shifted about on the lake for a few minutes, swatting bugs and discussing our strategy for the rest of the hunt. Red, I said, Green Lake's hunted out. We've only got three or four big ones. We say we paddle through to the runout into Mud Lake. We had never been into Mud Lake at night, and getting there involved traveling down a narrow, winding channel between the two lakes. The channel was filled with cypress knees and stumps and rotting logs and other obstructions. Being relatively new at operating the outboard, I was not confident enough to motor through this area even in the daylight. Red was just as nervous. This would be the farthest we had traveled from the cabin and our traditional hunting area. But the drive to fill our cooler with frogs won out, and Red said, Okay, let's go. We paddled slowly down the channel, unnerved by the confining ditch and the towering cypress trees crowding us. Animals sprang from the channel deeper into the woods. Looking at each other nervously, one of us would say, Ah, it's a deer and the other would say, probably a coon, and then we'd paddle a little faster. The water got shallow, and the paddles were used as push poles until finally we drifted into the open water of Mud Lake. I fired up the engine, and we took off shining the bank for frogs. Frog eyes were everywhere. One after another, Red plunked the big stinky frogs into the cooler, And when the cooler couldn't hold another frog, I killed the engine, 
The lights were turned off and we celebrated. Red reached deep into the cooler and pulled two cold drinks from the bottom, dipped the cans into the warm, dark water of the lake, rinsing off the frog slime. Slowly, we drifted into open water. Barred owls sang their spooky songs back and forth to each other from each side of the lake. We were enjoying ourselves immensely, laughing and talking about our good fortune when we heard the first screech. Oh! echoed across the river bottom. Soda shot out of Red's nose in great knee-high grape rushes. Again, oh! came from the near bank. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. A huge gar splashed on the surface of the lake close enough to throw water into the boat, thus adding dampness to our terror. Damp terror is one of the worst kinds of terror. Uh, uh, what, what was that, Red stammered. I don't know, I whispered as I switched on my spotlight and I began sweeping the bank with it. Red soon followed suit. We had the bank lit up like the opening of a Broadway show, checking out every shadow and every cranny on the lakeside. We both homed in on the reflective eyes at about the same time. The third squeal almost caused us to drop our lights. We stared at the shore and then at each other for a moment. Tufts of long brown fur were visible around the trunk of a big tree. The creature was looking at us. Its wide-spaced eyes were a menacing red glow eight feet off the ground. Another piercing scream echoed across the water. Red already had his paddle in the water moving us away from the bank, his hands still in a white-knuckle clutch on the spotlight that he had trained over my shoulder, its harsh light illuminating the woods and the creature behind the cypress tree. Red mumbled, I think it's a Sasquatch. I heard they got him over here. I looked over my shoulder one more time to see where the creature was, and then I began looking in the bottom of the boat for the starting cord. Quickly, I looped the cord around the flywheel. I stood up and spread my legs out wide, 
and as I was about to jerk the cord, I asked Red, Is it coming? From the front of the boat, I heard a loud, Ow! And his light quickly changed directions, hitting me full in the face. I was blinded, and the Sasquatch was coming right at us. The engine hadn't started, so I quickly wrapped the cord around the flywheel for another pull. I pulled the cord as hard as I could this time, arching it over my back so hard that it cracked like a bullwhip. Ow! Again from the front of the boat. Oh no, I thought. The creature must be getting closer for Red to be that scared. The engine sputtered and caught on that pull and revved loudly. Blue smoke billowed into the air as the little motor hit its maximum RPMs. I turned my light back to the front of the boat. Red's eyes were wild and darting from me to the woods and back again. The Sasquatch must be getting close. I heard a loud splash near the shore as I throttled down slightly to shift into gear. The boat lurched forward just as another scream filled the Delta air with more terror. I twisted the throttle as far as it would go and the boat sped up the lake and soon planed off, cutting a white line through the dark water. As I neared the runout between the two lakes, I remembered that I had never motored through this stretch of water, even in the daylight. Another equally terrifying thought entered my mind. While in this channel, the boat would be mere inches from either bank. It was the perfect Sasquatch ambush point. I'm going to try it, I yelled to Red over the straining engine. He had a look of terror in his eyes. He still had his paddle clutched in one knuckled fist, his spotlight in the other. He trained his light up the narrow channel as we entered our dark, gloomy escape route. The sides of the boat were very close to the banks. They were too close. The Sasquatch could be waiting up there anywhere. I was hoping he would attack from the front of the boat. Suddenly, the boat lurched sideways, and then the engine sputtered and died. The Sasquatch had us, I thought. I saw that we had only hit a submerged stump, though, just as Red's paddle began thrashing the water into a froth. Red had turned his back to me and was down on his knees, stroking, alternating to each side of the boat. And the boat did not seem to have slowed down one bit. We were possibly even picking up a little speed. The engine's dead, I yelled up to Red. Crank it back up, stupid, he yelled back. His arms and shoulders were a side-to-side swaying blur as he stroked the paddle. And that's when I smelled it. I had heard Sasquatches have an offensive odor, and now I had one close enough that I could smell it. That stench had to be coming from something as scary and disgusting as a Sasquatch. From the intensity of the smell, I thought that there might be more than one of the creatures closing in on us. I wrapped the cord around the flywheel as quickly as I could. My back was to Red when I jerked the cord with all my strength. Red screamed from the front of the boat. Whirling around to sit down and shift the outboard into gear, I yelled, Do you see him? Red stared back at me. That strange look was still in his eyes. I figured he was still scared, so I twisted the throttle up as fast as it would go. We shot out of the ditch and into the openness of Green Lake. I made for the cabin at full throttle. Water splashed up the sides of the boat, adding to the dampness the gar had left there. I realized I could still smell the Sasquatch, and I guessed that they must hunt in packs, and had somehow surrounded us. 
How else could I still smell them? I twisted the throttle a little harder. We covered the mile or so back to the cabin in record time. Red looked over his shoulder at me once in a while and his eyes had a funny look in them. He was obviously terrified. When I made the turn toward the cabin, I could see the lights inside and that light made that shore look very inviting. I tried to twist the throttle to slow down and it wouldn't turn. It must have become stuck wide open because I was holding it so tightly. I turned the handle with all of my 12-year-old strength, and yet another terrible thought seized me. We were going to hit the bank at full speed. I twisted again and felt something in the tiller handle break away, but we still didn't slow down. I tried turning the handle to the opposite direction to loosen whatever was holding it, and the engine slowed just before we slammed into the bank. Red timed the boat hitting the bank perfectly and jumped several yards up the slope. He sprinted up to the cabin with me on his heels. I skidded to a stop when I entered the cabin. Red continued on to the bathroom to further hide from the Sasquatch, I guess. I stopped and caught my breath, and then I told my father and his friends about our adventure and the Sasquatch. I didn't mention the broken outboard until the next day. Years later, when Red and I could finally discuss the happenings of that night without our voices quivering, I asked him if he smelled anything unusual on our speedy trip back to the cabin from Mud Lake. He denied smelling anything, and he said that he only rushed to the bathroom because of the guard and something about clean clothes helping him to relax after a good scare. story in this episode is a Christmas story. The author's name is Jack LaFontaine. Jack is an accomplished author and he's very, very nice to send me a story or two to narrate on this podcast. I want to thank you, Jack, for doing that. It's very nice of you. Uh, Before we get into the story, I want to let you know in the description of this podcast, I'm going to link his Amazon author page. You can go there and follow him. Jack has six books that I see available on Amazon. I've already bought Bayou Moon, his latest novel. There are five more. He's even got a Christmas book out. It's called Tis the Season. He's an accomplished author and, again, very nice to allow me to read some of his work on this podcast. And again, thank you, Jack. Uh, here's what he says about this story. He says, I'd like to follow up with you on the submission of my story, Now You See It, which is the title of the story. This story is a related story to me around the campfire by friends who heard the story from their parents. Please find the text attached to this email. So this is a story that was relayed, and Jack has, uh, has put it on paper. And I think you're going to enjoy this story. Now You See It by Jack LaFontaine I'll never forget the winter of 1935. It remains forever etched in my memory, not because the Great Depression had crippled the country or that in April a cloud of dust boiled up from the Oklahoma earth and blew all the way across the country. 
We had been told that we had nothing to fear but fear itself. That winter, I discovered what fear really was. In October of 1929, I was the owner of Grant's Mercantile, the busiest and most successful store in Ardmore, Oklahoma. Two years later, I was busy hiding the goods from the bank when they foreclosed. By the time December rolled around in 1935, I owned a beat-up drummer's wagon, one of the kind with the high wood sides and a roof with a little overhang to keep the rain off the driver, and a half-blind mule named Dan to pull it. Emma and I, along with our five children, were living in a shack on some land Emma inherited from her folks out near Wilson. The drought had about killed off whatever hope people had and carried away the money supply with the wind. Our canned provisions were withering away and Christmas was just around the corner. You're going to have to take the wagon out, she told me one night. Emma, I said with a huge sigh, we talked about that. I know, I know, Bill. The sadness in her sounded like it weighed a ton. Nobody else has any money either, but we gotta do something. At least say you'll try, please, for me. You know I can't say no to you, and I kissed her forehead. Of course I'll try. I'll take the wagon out through town, make a circle through the country, and try Ardmore one more time. I love you, she said. I see what's happening to you and how strong you are, and I love you for it. For better or for worse, I told her, we're going to make it through all of this someday. The next morning, we loaded up the wagon with a few remaining goods from the old store, mostly a mismatch assortment of pots and pans and dishes and a few kids' toys. Emma brought out a few of the saleable things from the house, some quilts, blankets, bits and pieces of old paste jewelry from her box on the dresser, and some candy she made from the last of the honey we had from the summer. To play upon any Christmas seers I might run across, Emma strung jingle bells over the driver's seat and on Dan's harness. I hugged all the kids and promised in my best cheery voice to be back home for Christmas. In all honesty, I wasn't looking forward to the prospect, but the day would come as they do, and there was nothing else to do but face it head on. I'm not the kind of man who cries, but this Christmas might be the one to finally break me. I shooed the kids away and turned to Emma. She looked so tiny and fragile, like a fine china doll. She was all of that, delicate and smooth with a tender heart, but I knew underneath she was tough as nails. She had never given up hope, and I leaned on that more than once in the last six years. Walk out with me, I said. She held my hand as we went out into the cold north wind. The second blue norther in a month was blowing over the arcbuckles. The wind was dry as last year's bird nest without a hint of snow, nothing but bone-chilling cold. Emma snuggled up close. I put my arms around her and turned my back to the wind to shelter her some. In the lee of the wind, I chanced to kiss. It was long and sweet, and thankfully our lips didn't freeze to one another, although even all these years later that doesn't seem like a bad thing to happen. When I finally turned her loose, or was it the other way around, I don't rightly know, 
But that short walk to the wagon felt like a trip to the gallows. Watching my boot tops all the way didn't help. Eventually, I had to look up at the seat and climb aboard. Dan looked back at me with a sad, forlorn look in his big brown eyes. I reckon he held out about as much hope for this trek as I did. Painting a smile on my face, I looked back at Emma and I waved. Let's go, Dan, I told the mule and snapped the reins across his hindquarters. We set off to the west toward the town of Wilson, about 80 miles away. I wanted to get to town when the sun was well up and people would be moving around. Dust billowed up off the road in small clouds around Dan's hooves and rolling wheels and was quickly snatched away by the wind. There were a few houses scattered near the road, and I was keeping an eye on the houses looking for signs of children. Christmas was just a week away, and if there was any spending money to be found, it would be with those who had kids. At least, that's what I kept telling myself to keep my spirits up. I chanced a couple of stops along the road and was turned down at both houses. Folks had the want to, they just lacked the means. About noontime, I pulled the reins back on old Dan about the middle of the block in front of a hotel in the newspaper office. Main Street only had three blocks of paved roads, and I steered away from the shop so as not to draw the ire of those that still remained in business. I put the feed bag on Dan, and I opened up the sides of the wagon, arranging a few dolls and toy guns and tops in the front of the wagon facing the hotel. I then set about rearranging the pots and pans suspended from the roof so they would hang above the toys, and I settled in to wait. I did a little praying, too, just a habit I picked up since the crash. An hour with no customers, so I dug out a tomato sandwich Emma had wrapped in an old dishcloth. The bread was a bit dried by the winter air despite being tucked carefully away behind the driver's seat. I still remember how good it tasted. It's a natural wonder what a man relishes when he has nothing to begin with. I was about halfway through the sandwich when the method to my madness paid off. A customer appeared. I could always count on at least one curious person to show in the middle of a meal. Howdy, how y'all doing? I greeted the couple who edged up to the wagon. Y'all feel free to look around, look everything over. The missus turned through the sack of quilts and inspected the pots and pans. She spent some time looking before turning her eyes to her husband to ask about what she really wanted. How much are the dolls, mister? The man asked as his wife stepped up for a closer look. Feel free to pick them up and get a feel for them, ma'am, I told her before turning back to the man. Two bits, your choice and a bargain at twice the price. Oh, honey, look, the wife held out a rosy-cheeked doll. My insides were doing a little jig, but I kept the smile small and friendly, not wanting to appear overly eager. It felt like a sale to me, and so it was. I pocketed the two dimes and a nickel, glad I wasn't called on to make change from the four pennies I had in my overalls. What's the little one's name, if you don't mind me asking? Eleanor. We call her Ellie. Of course you do. Well, here, take a few of these candies for little Ellie's stocking. It's on the house, of course. I have five little ones of my own. Thank you. She was beaming now, and damn, it felt good. 
Now, I don't mean to brag, well, maybe just a touch, but I rolled away from town that evening with nearly $3 in my pocket. You better bet I was thanking God that night as I built a fire beside the wagon and turned Dan out to graze. Why, I could dang near see his smiling face looking down on Emma and me from up above all those stars. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. I lingered a bit over coffee the next morning, hoping maybe a customer might wander over to where I was camped near the edge of town. Having no luck, I hitched up Dan and made a wide circle on the county roads until I was headed east towards Ardmore. It was getting on toward late afternoon when I topped a rise and I saw a mailbox with the name Clevenger painted on the side. The house sat down in a valley between two small hills, so I couldn't see it from the road. Not wanting to pass up an opportunity, I steered Dan down the drive I hoped led to the house. The road made an easy curve to the right and headed down. Once around the bend, I could see down to the bottom. The small clabbered house was painted gray by the weather. A few chickens scratched around the porch where an old man was gathering up an armload of stove wood. Smoke rose from a chimney near one corner and was promptly swept away by the wind. Even so, I could smell the smoke from midway down the drive. The place didn't look too promising for a peddler like me, but it was solid and homey. I pulled up about 10 yards from the porch and I caught the old gentleman reading a sign on the west side of the wagon labeling me Grant's Mercantile and Supplies. Climb on down, mister, the man said. Come inside out of the cold. We got coffee. Well, thank you, sir, I replied, smiling at the thought of a hot cup of coffee. Sounds right nice. It's colder than a witch's. It's, it's a dang cold for sure. Jack Clevenger, he held out a calloused hand. I'm Bill Grant. Glad to make your acquaintance. He had a warm, firm handshake, much to my liking, and an easy smile about him. A drummer in these parts could hardly ask for more, although a sale would top it by a mile. Opal, we got company, Jack called and held the door open for me. Gonna need some coffee. 
It's on the stove. Y'all sit down, came the answer from another room. The living room was simply furnished. A pair of chairs faced a big pot-bellied stove that was tucked into a corner. The round-top table that sat next to her chair wore a lace doily and a small glass that held a few dead flowers. A rough square table next to the other chair held a knife and a small wooden figure. A table with four chairs took up the space between the living room and the kitchen. Jack pointed me to one of the chairs and I sat down nearest the door. The heat thrown off by the big stove felt good and my nose and ears began to thaw right away. A moment later, we were joined by a tiny woman with a face weathered by the sun who hurried in to pour scalding black liquid into tin cups and put them on the table. What brings y'all out in this cold, she asked. Trying to make a living, I said. I've got a wagon full of goods outside. What needs selling? Opal glanced at her husband, but she said nothing. It's a hard time to be selling, he said. Folks around here have hit hard times. Don't I know it, I agreed. How's things treating y'all? Hard's the only way to say it. Don't recall the last time I had two nickels to rub together. No need to explain. You folks have been kind enough to let me into your home. You gave me a cup of coffee and a chance to get warm. I won't go pressuring y'all to buy anything. But there's a way y'all might help a fella like me out. How's that? I'm making a loop towards Ardmore and then home. Maybe y'all can save me some time. Is there anybody in these parts that might have some spending cash? Jack scratched his chin as he pondered the question and he slowly shook his head. There might be someone, Opal volunteered. Jack gave her a quizzical look and he scratched his head. You know, she said, them folks down by Walnut Creek, the ones with the big white house. Oh yeah, Jack's eyes lit up as he remembered. Are they still living there? I heard there was some trouble with the law a while back. They might have gotten foreclosed on. Far as I know, they're still around, she said. Folks keep talking about them anyways. Well, it's good enough for me, I said. Y'all just point me in the right direction. I finished my coffee and was eager to be off in search of a paying customer. Jack figured I had just enough time to get there at twilight and back to town by dark if that was my plan. I assured him time was not a big factor. I had room in the back of the wagon to sleep and plenty of blankets to ward off the cold. Jack and I shook hands and I thanked Opal for the coffee and the lead. The couple braved the cold to stand out on the porch and watch me drive away to the east. I had a vague idea where Walnut Creek was and armed with Jack's directions to the house, I was pretty confident I'd find the place right off. I was about a quarter mile from Walnut Creek when I caught sight of a tall, whitewashed two-story house. I couldn't help but smile. With a little luck, this stop could make the entire trip. I clucked at Dan and snapped the reins, urging him to pick up the pace. Dan wasn't as excited as I was, but he did step a little livelier. This was a chance to save Christmas for Emma and the kids. One big sale that was all I needed, and this had to be it. I turned in under an iron arch that stood over the entrance to the drive. I reined in the mule to get a better look at the house. Lace curtains hung in all the windows, and wood was stacked high on the porch near the door. 
I noticed the silhouette of a woman as she passed back and forth before the window in what was probably her kitchen. Smoke curled from two chimneys. I popped the reins and started down the drive. As I got closer, I could hear a fiddle playing an old Christmas song. It didn't take me long to recognize that tune, O Christmas Tree. I let Dan have his head. He knew the routine. He would pull up at the door even without my say-so. When we came to the stop, I opened the small door behind me and began to rummage around in the wagon for a stack of linen tablecloths I had stashed away up front. They were a sure sale in a place like this, and I wanted them handy. I turned back to look at the house, and that's when things began to spiral out of control. My mouth fell open. The rain slipped from my hands. I had to rub my unbelieving eyes. The stately White House was not there. It wasn't gone exactly, more like transformed. In its place was a house of wood beaten to an ashy gray by the weather. Broken, uncovered windows stared back at me with dark eyes. The porch was caved in at one end. The steps leading up to it sagged from rot and disuse. It couldn't be, but it was. I blinked my eyes several times trying to make sure of what I was seeing. No matter how hard I tried, nothing changed. The house remained a rotting relic. Still in the grip of unbelief, I decided to go inside. I had to see it all. I waded through knee-high weeds to the far end of the house by what I thought would be the kitchen. No smoke curled from the chimney and no woman walked by the window. I walked back to the middle of the structure, deciding to chance the run-down stairs. The rotting wood groaned under my weight, and I almost retreated, but it held, and I went on. I hit a loose floorboard on the porch and stumbled, nearly going down before I caught myself. I put out a hand to break my fall, and I fell heavily against the front door. The door screeched as it swung open on rusty hinges. Inside, the red Oklahoma dust covered the floor and drifted up in the window seals. Ragged tatters that were once curtains fluttered in the windows. A few torn and tattered pieces of furniture were scattered about the room. In the corner stood the bones of a dried-up Christmas tree. Shards of broken glass bulbs littered the floor beneath it. A fiddle collected dust on the mantel. The ghost of Christmas passed. The thought jumped into my mind from out of nowhere. I told myself for the hundredth time, this just couldn't be happening. I knew what I saw. I wasn't crazy. Still, I was beginning to wonder. I stood in the middle of the living room and gazed around the room again. Nothing changed. It remained the empty, dust-covered ruin it was moments before. I walked over to the stairs and I looked up. Sunlight poured through the broken windows that did little to hold back the wind. The quiet was suddenly broken by the creaking of a floorboard right over my head. At first, I denied that I heard it. I cocked my head in the direction of the sound, and there it was again. Who's there? I called up the stairs. The only answer was the whistling of the wind. I stood stock still, listening intently while not wanting to hear and then I did hear. It was not my imagination. Footsteps slowly crossed the floor above me. 
Every footfall was clear. The hair on the back of my neck stood on end. A crawling sensation moved down my spine. Goose flesh stood on my arms and I shivered. Eyes were on me. I could feel them as sure as I knew my name. My name, yeah, that's what did it for me. A voice wet and strangled by rotten vocal cords, the voice of something not entirely human, croaked my name. I didn't think. I didn't question. I didn't even breathe first. I bolted through the door. I jumped from the porch, and the damn wagon was gone. I heard bells jingling, moving away fast. I looked up the drive. Dan was off like he was bound for glory, leaving me with nothing but a cloud of dust. I ran after the wagon, alternating between cursing and pleading with the mule to stop. I never looked back once. I didn't dare. I could feel something breathing down my neck. Dan finally came to a stop. The reins had gotten tangled around a sapling that had grown up on the side of the road. I reached the wagon in a flash and climbed up into the seat, yelling at Dan to giddy up before my butt hit the bench. For once in his life, Dan was happy to obey. I believe he felt it, too. Try as he might, Dan couldn't move fast enough for me. I drew out the whip and popped his ass. Dan jumped and took off as fast as he could move. I pulled him in a tight circle and drove down the rutted, narrow drive in a tooth-jarring dash for the arc above the road. I didn't care which way I went. Dan chose west over the road we had just traveled. And when we hit the road, I finally dared to look back. At the far end of the driveway sat a neat, clean, whitewashed home. A lady moved past her window carrying a huge turkey. Smoke curled from the chimney. I smelled burning wood, roast turkey, and the scent of baking bread. Candles burned in the window behind the lace curtains while a fiddle played Silent Night. I didn't care. Hell, by that time I thought I'd lost my mind. I snapped the reins. Yah, mule, I shouted. Dan, move your ass. Dan carried me down the road to the sound of banging pans and rattling glass and jingling bells and the crash of a constantly shifting, bouncing load of housewares. I just let him go. Just hanging on was all my mind could manage at the time. I didn't protest when Dan turned off the road and began walking down towards the Clevenger place. The idea of human contact and maybe a cup of coffee to steady my nerves sounded mighty good. As we approached the house, I saw a beaten-up Model T truck parked in the yard. A man in his early 20s was unloading suitcases from the bed. He waved as I approached. Hey there, he called to me. Come on down from that wagon and let's see what you got there. The possibility of a sale in that invitation did not register. The sight of another person relaxed me enough that I finally gave in to the shakes. I was shaking all over so bad that I nearly fell off the wagon. The man walked over where I sat and stared up at me. You okay? he asked. You better get inside and warm up. He helped me down off the wagon and I managed to stumble into the house. It took a minute or two after I sat down for the tremors to stop. His wife brought a blanket and laid it across my shoulders. The cold wasn't the cause of my shaking, though, but the blanket felt good anyway. 
After a couple of sips of coffee, I felt sane enough to talk. Thank you for the coffee and the blanket, I said. I'm feeling better now. You gave me a bit of a scare, the man said. Jack Clevenger's my name. I stared at his outstretched hand longer than I should have, but eventually I put my hand in his. Bill Grant, I said. Sorry to intrude on your visit. I don't follow you, he said. You're the only company we've had at the moment. Well, what about the elderly couple that was here earlier? Aren't they your folks? Opal and I are the only ones that live here, he told me. We just got back from visiting her people over in Shea. What elderly people are you talking about? I looked slowly around the room. The little house appeared exactly the same as it had earlier. The same chair sat in the front of the fireplace, and same table, same stove, even the same coffee pot. I was here earlier today, I said. There was an old couple here. They said they were Jack and Opal Clevenger. Well, that's impossible, he said. I'm Jack, and that's my wife, Opal. We live here. Look, mister, my wife and I just got home. We've been gone for three days. Ain't nobody else been here. I'm telling you the truth, I said after recounting the events of the afternoon. I drove in here. There was an old couple living here who said they were Jack and Opal Clevenger. They sent me down the road to the White House near the creek. I got all that, Jack told me. But there ain't no such people in these parts. Wait a minute, Opal chimed in. Did you say the White House east of here near the creek? Yes, that's what he said. But there's no such place. Maybe not now, Opal said. But that big rundown house was probably white at one time. So, Jack said. So the couple that lived there were in their 60s. But they're dead, Jack told her. You know that. Everybody knows that. The old boy killed her on Christmas. Holy cow. Haints, I muttered more to myself than the others. Understanding was beginning to bloom in my mind. They was haints. All the time I was walking around in that place and haints was watching me. Haints is just jokes people play, Jack said. That's what's going on. Somebody was playing a joke on you. They knew you were gone and set you up. Oh, I was set up all right, I said. I seen what I seen, no doubt about it. Them haints was laying for me, and I darn near was caught. Y'all excuse me, but I'm getting out of here, and I ain't never coming back. I led Dan back to town with my lantern. Was it no way I was staying around that place in the dark? I never did make Ardmore that year. I did have the presence of mind to sell Jack and Opal $3 worth of goods before starting out. I was never so glad to be home for Christmas before or since. And that is the God's honest truth. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.